Hi, you're listening to What's the Schemata, a schema therapy podcast for therapists. With ISST accredited schema therapy supervisors and trainers, Chris Hayes and Rob Brockman. For more information on schema therapy, visit our website, schematherapytraining.com. Hi, and welcome to What's the Schemata? This is a specialist podcast for all things schema therapy, and today we have a very exciting uh, presentation with the originator of schema therapy, Dr. Jeff Young. This is the first of a two-part presentation, so there will be another podcast in the coming weeks. And uh, Rob Brockman and myself joined Jeff in New York City earlier this month in January 21, and talk to him on a range of different things about schema therapy as a bit of a deep dive into various topics. So we really hope you enjoy it. This presentation is brought to you by Schema Therapy Training Online, the online training hub for schema therapy. There's over nine different courses and we're going to have new courses coming out in uh, 2021 these are engaging multi-format courses so if you're interested in expanding your knowledge about schema therapy have a look at our website www.schematherapytrainingonline.com now the presentation starts with rob discussing with jeff our preparations for the interview hope you enjoy this and we should have part b of the podcast available to you in the next couple of weeks Thanks. We were talking about um, on Friday, like actually we're pretty nervous. Uh, we, do, we do a lot of these, but, um, you know, it's not every day that you, you interview Jeff Young, you know, originator of Schema, right? So we're sitting there going, oh, how do you feel about it? You know, um, and then say, so, yeah, why don't you show, do you want to show Jeff this clip we came up with? Have you um, seen Wayne's World? It's uh, a movie, movie from the I, 80s or 90s. I've lots of movies, but I've, I've never seen Wayne's World. Okay, so there's this scene in Wayne's World where these guys meet Alice Cooper. I'll just show it to you. This captures a sentiment. We got to get going. No, no, no. Stick around. Hang out with us. Cool. Yeah, we'll stay and hang around with us. With Alice Cooper. <laughs> We're not worthy! We're not worthy! We're not worthy! We're so it's not that extreme. <laughs> I love that. It's really cute. <laughs> we're trying to find some, but then we went further and we're thinking, we're thinking of ways to lighten the mood at the start. And we're like, well, you know, like when we type our names into, into the net to see what we get. So we type your name in and you come up as the lead singer of some heavy metal <laughs> kind of uh a band called megadeth you're the guitarist young out there interesting i didn't know there was one who was you know in the you know music music star so that's there you go it's a mega you're the megadeth guitarist and then i typed in uh rob and rob came up as um what was it rob billionaire tax evader rob brockman uh, robert (laughs) t brockman from the united states so why don't we just start with a bit of a reflective question about um this sort of historical development of schema do you want to say a few things about that? We'd really love to hear it straight from, from, from you about, about why you developed the model, um, you know, and, and any personal experiences that come to mind that sort of that really. Um, I guess, um, I guess I'd say that the, 
probably if you try to look at the, like the origins of schema therapy, <clears throat> I guess it's important to know that before doing or developing schema therapy at all, I had learned many, many therapies and studied from people. My whole goal as a, in my career was to learn every major therapy, but I didn't have my own therapy then. So, um, so I had studied with lots of people. So I knew Gestalt therapy. I, you know, I knew I'd gotten behavior therapy from Wolpe and, you know, of course, uh, Beck was my mentor. So I came with it with an awful lot of different ideas about, you know, what therapy should be. But what would my sort of progression was always, I think I'd found this wonderful new therapy like behavior therapy or Gestalt therapy. Then I try to use it with maybe as an intern or a fellow and it wouldn't work with, with, with many, many patients. So it was sort of like getting excited, thinking I found the answer and then finding, well, that wasn't real. That's part of the answer, but it really wasn't the full answer. And right, that right. happened with several therapies, including family therapy. So, but then when I was with Beck, I think it was the closest I came to feeling I'd found, you know, the real therapy or, you know, the, a therapy that actually was really like me, fit me very, very well. Yeah. The reality was it fit me very well the way I was at that age, you know, which was probably, I guess I was like under 30 at that time. So yeah. it, it fit me when I was that age. But I And what do you mean by that? Do you mean that in the sense that you might have been very cognitive yourself at that time or? Very logical and tried to solve everything through logic, debates, you know, discussion. I don't mean like reading all the time. I mean, it would be in conversations, but my mind was, I was much more in touch with my mind than I was with my feelings. So it's important because I think when we get to one of the main turning things, turning points, I think it was my recognition of how important emotions are to me as a person and also in doing therapy. So that's why I'm going back to this period because during when I was with Beck, you know, the cognitive approach fit me really wonderfully. And, and for the types of patients who were coming to Beck Center, who were um, basically, they were patients who would be in a, they fit a study. They were like depressed people in a research study depress people in private practice yeah. or at a clinic because they're selected because they only have depression. Yeah. Everything else has been ruled out. So if you rule everything out and you just have depression, um, cognitive therapy was extremely effective. And, you know, so I was very excited about it and satisfied with it until I decided I wanted to go off into my own private practice. And then, of course, I got a much more diverse group of patients. And while many of them had depression, their main problem wasn't necessarily depression. Or if it was, they'd been depressed all their life, or mm -hmm. depression wasn't even the central problem they were coming up with. Many of them had personality disorders. And so I realized that working with a diverse group of patients, it was so different because all of a sudden, Everyone wasn't getting better in 20 weeks. Everyone wasn't getting better in four months. They weren't getting better in six months. So mm. some people weren't I, getting better at all. 
Right. Uh, right? Yeah. Some of them weren't getting better at all. Exactly. And I'm sensing, Jeff, there's a sort of core dissatisfaction that you were experiencing at that time. Uh, can I say that? Like with that experience? Well, yeah, it was a, this was when I was in private practice. Yeah. I'd say the dissatisfaction, although my nature isn't to feel it like a dissatisfaction, it's to try to solve, it's to look at it as I'm stuck. Yeah. How do I solve What's the problem? problem? Yeah back to the logical part of me so it wasn't like oh this is discouraging i'm defeated it's more like oh well now this isn't working now i've got to find something else but you weren't happy I, to sit on your hands you were you were like what well, there's got to be something else there's got to be there's got to be an answer there's you know um and there's, it sounds like there was something cool about that which was which was driving you to to keep going to find some answers and it's what always has driven me always has been things that i'm stuck with things I can't solve, things like difficult patients, patients who don't respond to schemas. That's why I eventually developed the modes. So every step of my career and career has been looking for things or, or coming across patients or, or problems that weren't responding to whatever I was doing at the time and looking for either other people who got ideas from other people or develop, coming up with my own ideas while working with patients yeah. and trying new things. So I feel like if you look at, to look at patients, like I, I'll have people like who I supervise who say, I feel so stuck, it's, de it's so defeating, I feel like I'm gonna, I get too frustrated and depressed. And I try to say, although I know of course I can't change that feeling, but I say, no, that, that's, <clears throat> that's how you learn therapy. That's how you get better. You figure out how is this person different from the ones that I've been successful with, and is this a group a, a, a patient that I need to try something new with, or is this a patient where I don't have a therapy or no a therapy that I can make headway with them? But it's a very different view from, you know, from getting I'd say discouraged and feeling like I no, it wasn't like, like a hopelessness or something. It was it was more like a challenge. It was like a challenge, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, some, some I really resonate with that too, and and I think many of many uh, clinicians would. You know, I remember um, early in my career being in a similar place in early in my career, and and just being driven to keep learning and learning and reading and um, yeah, being in that state of trying to incorporate as many therapies as possible. Um, but for me, it was rather than coming up to cognitive therapies, you did, and say this is something that resonates for me. It was schema schema was around by then it was like now this is something that resonates for me what do you think chris yeah i think that a lot of clinicians that are involved um with schema theory the same sentiment they feel like it's a part of bringing other things in and it's it working as a as a unit rather than being eclectic and this sort of thing jeff yeah. when, when you were doing you know it seemed like there was a bit of uh, material um i think you know beck had been talking about modes a little bit and sort of in, in some of the literature um, can you tell us a little bit more about your development of the mode model and what made you, you know, take that further? Yeah, well, I would say that, first of all, you know, I have been doing, I developed schema therapy, let's say it must have been from 1980 to 19, I don't know, 85. And by then I already had 
my first list of schemas, I'd already, an early list, but I'd already developed a very short, a very early version of the schema questionnaire. So I was quite happy with, you know, with the schema model I developed when combined with other things. But then I had two patients who were borderlines and I had never worked with borderlines before. And these were really difficult, like suicidal borderlines. They had met each other in a hospital been hospitalized so then they decided what do they knew each other they they, they, were... they met each other through the hospital so yeah. yeah so they knew each other so i was already seeing one of them and the other then when she went into a hospital because she was suicidal she met this other another another borderline in the hospital and then she convinced the other patient in the hospital to come and see me also uh, so now, not only do I have one incredibly difficult borderline, but I've got two of them. Two, yeah. And, yeah. You know, maybe you can manage a way to work with borderlines for one of them, but you get two of them. It's very challenging. And two of them that know each other and that are talking about you and, you know, <laughs> uh, strategizing. Yeah. And if you go a little further, just for curiosity, I mean, it's interesting is that they would sometimes like drive over together in the car and park outside my apartment building and just do nothing, just look up at, look up in the window. So, <laughs> yeah, so it was like being followed all the time. But in any case, um, the point was that um, I realized that the schema model wasn't enough mm. to under, even understand borderline patients. Yes, they had schemas. They almost, and, and with the inventories, they had almost every schema. So it made it difficult to use a standard schema approach I developed because they have every schema. So all you're doing is jumping from one to the other to the other, and it, it wasn't workable. Uh, I could, you can't work on like 14 schemas at one time. So then I said, well, maybe I need to look at them differently and find a way to deal with the fact that they're different every week that they come in. One week they one week they come in and they're angry. One week they they wanting to cut themselves. One week no week are they happy. By the way, but you know one week they're depressed. One week they're angry. One week they're self punitive. But I didn't have a term for these changes yeah. that they, I would see. Yeah. It was literally like a different person would come into my come office. In, yeah. Or, yeah, which when was the moment that you realized, oh, this is like a like a multiplicity thing. This is a you know, this is a self thing. Well, then I just well, what happened then is I started saying, I have to do something with the model itself. It's not just a te technical change. It's a model mm. change. I have to rethink how are they different from all of these other patients. And that's when I first started looking at the fact that the state changes that they were not it wasn't the difference between them was not that they had different schemas from other patients it's they flipped from one state to another so quickly and from session to session and nothing in the model was really state-based it was all like personality traits if you want yeah. to look at it that way which were the schemas so then i started look trying to write down the different ways they come into the office right what, yeah right how they'd be how they'd be acting you know, what would have triggered it. And then I started to give names to these different parts. Mm, so I yep. say, well, this is the angry part, or this is the, you know, this is the self punitive part, something yep. like that. Yep. But then 
which was very helpful. So it gave me a, an actual practical way to work with them. But from a theoretical point of view, that still wasn't a theory, just to say we have states. So then I started looking into everything about uh, dissociative identity disorder, which I think Mark right. back then was called multiple personality disorder. So right. I read books about it. I spoke to several practitioners about it who, work, who worked with that population yep. and tried to think, well, and one in particular was actually called for supervision for yep. schema therapy, but the patient she had was multiple personality disorder and she'd studied how to work with multiple personality disorder. And I remember trying to figure out, well, how are the pe patients with multiple personality disorder different from these borderlines? Because yeah. there were many similarities. Yeah. And it's just that the, and basically my conclusion was that they have very similar sides of themselves, modes. Yep. They would have, like, instead of one little child, they'd have four little ch children yeah. all at different ages. Yeah. And yeah. then I might look and notice that when people with multiple personality or DID get into a, what I then call, we call it a mode, um, it was far more extreme and they didn't have any access to the other modes that they had. Yeah, so, so it's more so dissociated, essentially. Yeah. Mm. Right, so that's why I decided it's a spectrum of dissociation yeah. and that you have to look at patients, even, 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 even normal patients, as somewhere in the spectrum, because whenever someone shifts states, whenever they shift from a depressed state into an anxious state, they're they're diso they're partly dissociating. The other parts of themselves, the healthy parts, the the you know maybe the angry part of themselves are are pushed away, and this this part of themselves predominates and takes over. Takes over. Yeah. At that time, it's only a yeah. question of how extreme. Yep. So that's so interesting, you know, the, the, the way that the model was pushed by your own experiences, you know, with different populations, and that led to some, some proliferation into different populations and also an adjustment in the model. Right, exactly. But, I think that, that was the most important change. And even, even since then, it's, I don't think there's been any change in the model that transformed it as much as the mode change. Although I'll say at the time, I just looked at it as a helpful way to work with borderline patients. I wasn't thinking of it as a revision of the model. It took few, several yeah. years before I realized that I could use the same approach. Well, absolutely. And even depression and, you know, I think it comes full circle eventually, you know, that um, the mode model is just as applicable to presentations of depression and anxiety disorders, for example, and we're still realizing that. Yeah, exactly. And then I started realizing that it was a question that people with different disorders or different personalities, they would just have different modes. So then I started adding more modes and yeah. trying to group the modes into categories like the child modes, the adult modes, the coping modes. So that's when I started expanding the theoretical part of it. So the modes, and also I would link the schemas to the modes and says modes are what are the states people go into when schemas are triggered. So it's the active, so that way I could blend the schema concept with the mode concept. So that modes, scheme modes are the state people get triggered into when a schema is triggered. And that provided the link between 
the schema part of the model and the mode part. Jeff, I was going to ask you, you know, when you were mentioning before, you have a borderline client and you're coming in with different presentations and you're kind of looking at that you know, and trying to tick off or kind of um, sort of uh, link that up to a particular mode uh, presentation experience and, and develop that. Obviously, it's moved into forensic and moved into other kind of uh, populations, ones that maybe you wouldn't have had experience with. What do you think about the proliferation of the mode model? Is there limits to this, or you know, what, how do you how do you see that? Well, I think that I don't think it's so much that there are limits to the mode model. I think it's that a lot of people like the mode model so much that they they lose track of the schemas. They lose fat. I mean, the model is has two parts. It has the part that's the depth. What are the deep issues? the deep traumas, the deep themes that patients have. And I feel for every patient, you have to know what those core themes or schemas are. And then you blend that with modes because modes are what happens when schemas get triggered. But if you see a person in a, let's say an angry child mode, that doesn't tell you anything about why do they have an angry why? child mode? Why was it triggered at that particular the flavor of that mode, the flavor of that experience? Yeah, exactly. Because if you don't know the developmental origin, yeah. you don't know what to do, really what to do with the mode. So the idea was never you take each mode and here are the techniques for the mode. It's that you take the mode, you go deep, you dig down to figure out what's the schema it's connected to, and then you work on the mode and the schema simultaneously and that's what mode work is it's it's a combination of so it's actually it's really important to see that isn't it and in a way that the, the model can be captured there's i mean it, there's more to it but as a sort of schemas times modes it's it's yeah. that interaction between the mm. two of them that really is illuminating yes and that's so what's been discouraging i can't discouraging is maybe too strong but what's been a little frustrating has been that some countries, I actually say countries, but it's, of course it's individual therapists too, but they, they start focusing on modes and think that they can just do mode work and that, and that we can just talk about mode therapy as a separate therapy from schema therapy. And if they're thinking that way, they're doing it wrong. And they don't like it when I say that. Right. They're, are doing well, you're not even wrong. conceiving of it right. Like if you if you right, if you're thinking about it that way, you, you, it's it's telling me that we're not we're not actually thinking about it in in the right way because you're missing the schemas. Yeah, and I think the thing that's always missing is the developmental part. And mm -hmm. I feel that schema therapy it's a developmental theory, a developmental model that starts in childhood and goes up to the present. And as soon as you forget the schemas and just look at the modes, you're no longer using a developmental model. You're using a present model. And then you might as well be doing EMDR or something like so that. So it's this sort of flexible way of being with what's in the room and, and being able to deal with that in a way that sort of notices the states, but also yeah. having flexibility to, to have that developmental view the whole time and not yeah. lose sight of that and connect the two. Well, exactly. And in fact, if anyone's talking about the patient being in a mode that I'm, let's say I'm supervising someone and they're talking about a patient who's in a certain mode, I'll always say, well, what triggered the mode? Why are they in it? And they'll often say, well, I don't know. They're in it a lot of the time. And I say, well, is it triggered by 
you know, is it triggered by someone who's depriving them? Is it triggered because someone's controlling them? Is it triggered because they can't get the love that they want? I mean, what are the things that are activating the mode? I say, if you don't know that, you're not going to know how to do the mode work because you don't know where what the trigger if you don't know the trigger you can't help them work with it and then, and then what's the history of this mode going beyond the proximal trigger like where does this mode come from what's the history of this exactly and there's a lot of attunement stuff as well yeah attuning to what's happening and that's one thing i noticed that we miss a little bit you know as trainers sometimes i know rob's been sort of focusing on that in terms of um, bringing people in and helping people to kind of be more aware of attuning because i think it's more uh, um, an implicit thing that therapists should have but I know what your thoughts well, I, are. You know, since I didn't mention this, because if we go really back before, before. Let's do it, Jeff. Let's go back. Yeah, let's back. Go Jeff, <laughs> to graduate school. Jeff in graduate school was very interested in attachment theory and loneliness. And actually, that was the first model I got interested in. So, in a way, issues like attunement and having a, a parent or a mother who is attuned to the child, you know, and and all the issues and how that affects attachment, you know, was one of the earliest things I was interested in. And it was a major component of my developing reparenting, of developing a, a, whole, a developmental model came from attachment theory. So I would just say the idea of attunement and attachment to me are very central and they were from I think it's fair to say, though, too, Jeff, if you were looking at that in the 70s and 80s, you know, um, attachment ideas relative, relatively new, you know, yes. um, and the practical applications of that weren't really realised. And I think I think what you did um, is, is definitely make that very concrete, as in how would this inform me as a therapist? Like, if I take attachment seriously, um, how would this affect uh, my therapy? And I think that's that's an important point in general, which is, um, I don't know, people will say, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with any compliments. So one thing is I never brag because I get embarrassed. So, but I would just say some people have said that one of my main talents is being able to take a theoretical concept and actually translate it into the actions, the therapy. Something concrete, yeah. Right, something concrete, because I'm never satisfied with just a theory. And that's why I get impatient with theories that don't have, you know. And so did you get blowback? I imagine, like, you know, as much as it's accepted now, I mean, at the time, I imagine as a cognitive therapist, you're talking about an attachment relationship between the therapist and, 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 and the, the client. I mean, what was that like in the 80s and, you know, the 90s? Actually, at that point... I kind of blocked attachment theory out of my mind because you can't really, when you're doing it in an outcome study and you have a very strict protocol and tapes are being rated, you know, I may, I think I developed the rating scale for cognitive therapy. Ah, so you were in your cognitive therapy mode at the time. But still put in a section on the therapy relationship, even in the first uh, cognitive therapy rating scale. So I always, I, it's not like I dropped the idea how important it is. It's that I dropped the idea of how central it is. I saw it as a way to get the person th through the relationship. You could get a patient 
to be open to trying things that you wanted them to try. And that taking a kind of a combative relationship, a debating relationship like Ellis did, I knew wasn't wouldn't work because you have to connect to the person. So, but I wasn't thinking of it as attachment theory. I had kind of put that theory away. I didn't, I mean, I negated it, but just that it wasn't relevant, I thought at that time. Um, so when, when did you fully realize that? Uh, which? <laughs> the, uh, the attachment that, side, like when did you come back around to realizing that that needs to come back in? It came back when I started to make the list of schemas because as soon as I started looking at the patients who were not responding to, to regular cognitive therapy, I started realizing these are people with their problems started in childhood. I started listing the problems they had in childhood, cold mothers, controlling fathers, critical, critical parents, bullying people who bullied them. So we, we, it was many of the schemas like deprivation, abandonment, they, they are central to attachment. So, you know, as soon as, I went through, as soon as I started looking at the origins of my patients' problems, I got back into attachment theory and other developmental models that I had sort of put aside for many, many years. So, and then I made it central, although I didn't call it attachment theory, although in, even my first book, there's a whole section on attachment theory at, in, the, in the origins of how I arrived at it. But um, I'd say it's only when I started coming up with specific schemas that I realized I was back I was back in attachment theory again. Nice. And, and I've continued, you know, using attachment theory and thinking of it in attachment terms since then. My main problem with attachment theory is, again, like I just said to you, theories that don't have techniques or strategies that you can use in therapy, they, they are insufficient to me. So it's like a, it's a theory looking for a way to apply it. So I feel like in some ways, I took parts of attachment theory and gave therapists a way they can actually use the theory to improve the therapy. And again, the parenting is right out of, it's really a form of, of attachment. Yeah, do, what do you think um, about the, the schema model itself as well? Do you, do you think we've sort of met our limit at the 18 schemas? Or do you think there's sort of more ultimately or combinations or what's your take on on that well uh, to be honest i've been disappointed that no one has expanded um the model more i, I feel like i kind of reached my own i yeah. feel like it comes up with idea, new ideas this i have a whole theory about people who are like creative and yeah. that they they burn out at a certain point. All of their good ideas have mm. been used. <laughs> it's, I don't know how to say it, but it's like yeah. by a certain age, the new ideas mm. aren't likely to come. They can get much better at, at refining the ideas they already had, but brand new ideas, often you need younger people who come up with it. How, it's interesting you say that, I think data on this. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting as well because it's like often, you know, when you're in the model and you're learning the model, you want to stick to the model as well and have that kind of permission to be able to develop it is quite good for people like, you know, Chris and Rob and for others that are listening to this podcast, because I do feel sometimes I'm like, do you want to you know, stick to the, to the model? If we're going off piece, is that, is that okay? 
And what I, what I want people to do is when they're first learning the model, stick to the model because that's how I always mm, did yeah, it. The yeah. whole, whole belief about learning therapy is take a therapy, learn it really, really well. Mm. Don't become, don't just try eight different therapies and just eclectically experiment trial and error. I said, you take a model, you learn the model thoroughly, and then you think about how do you either combine them, how do you, what, what do you need to add to it, when is it not working, but I think you, you can't really know, you can't come up with two ideas till you're sure you understand the one that you're The existing ones, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then you can sort of break, start to learn how to break the rules. Right, well, exactly. And make new rules. Right, and you should know why you're breaking it. Like, like, <laughs> like when I had borderline patients and realized that just working with their schemas was not explaining the state changes they were having. So yeah. there was obviously something missing. And since I knew the model because I developed it, I didn't. I knew the model didn't have a state construct in it. So without a state construct. I realized I couldn't do anything. So it's then- so interesting because you're right. With the 18 schemas, um, it hasn't really been pushed beyond that uh, since you stopped writing about it. So you would encourage others actually to to think outside the box. And yeah, I've I've always said you know that I wish that there was there were people trying to expand the theory and add yeah. new parts to it. And um, I know that. Uh, there are a couple of people who have done it, but I'd say for the most part, what people have done is taken the model as it is and extend it into new population. Yeah. Yeah. You may yeah. use, develop some new techniques, you add some modes, you made schema, yeah. but, but for the most part, there haven't been fundamental things. I'm myself working now, because I have two new patients with very severe traumas. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out a way to integrate, integrate trauma work mm. and the concept of trauma yeah. into the model more effectively. Because I feel what, what therapists have to do now, because we don't really have techniques mm. for trauma other than imagery or mode dialogues or something like that. We could have a whole podcast on this in, a, in, a, in six months' time, Jeff, oh, if you want to come back. back. We'll have you back. <laughs> uh, like I, I like EMDR because it is, it focuses just on the trauma, yeah. whereas the therapy focus, as you call it, developmental trauma. So mm. it's really focusing on the the outgrowth of the trauma in the years after the trauma happens, but to actually work on the original trauma, which is still stored in memory and still gets triggered yeah. i think you need different techniques and strategies and a different model uh and a way to integrate it into the but we the found model. that too Jeff. and it seems a lot of the the trauma people that you know especially in the states they focus a lot on things like structural dissociation and this sort of stuff and then you look at schema mode model and you think, oh, why don't you, why don't you come on the line to this? Because that's what you know, a lot of the clinicians in Australia do. They integrate EMDR with something like you know, the mode model and it, and it works really well. But yeah, Exactly. But, but I mean, I don't have much time. Actually, I yeah. like this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Currently. Jeff, we've got as much time as we need. <laughs> yeah. What I'm going to say mm -hmm. is that, um, like, I have a patient right now with, I'd say, the most severe history of trauma that I've ever had. 
and um, and she's had years of EMDR before starting yeah. or contacting me. So it's someone who's already got with with different, very good uh, EMDR therapists. So yeah. it wasn't like just someone using a trainee. It mm. wasn't someone who just tried. It's it. not like they didn't have good EMDR. Yeah. Right. And for a very long time, a year, I don't know if it was 10 years of EMDR or whatever. And she'd made very good progress as she would report, she reported it. Good progress in that um, she knew, she knew when a certain thing that was happening to her would, was triggering an early trauma and what that early trauma was. And she said that after 10 years of doing it, the intensity of the affect when the trauma gets triggered by something in late in her adult life is lower than it was. Yeah. But she has so much trauma that the amount that it lowers it isn't enough to make her life livable. Because if you have so many terrible mm -hmm. traumas mm -hmm. and each one's been reduced by 50%, let's say, no. You're still left with a terrible amount of trauma, not to mention the fact that EMDR therapists did none of them worked on the ways that she coped with her with her traumatic experience in, in totally um, dysfunctional ways in her social relationships. So her you know her romantic relationships were terrible, her friendships were terrible, but all because something would happen, it would trigger the trauma. And then she'd do something, some one of the modes where she either get angry and attack them, or you know she'd become depressed and hopeless and give up and leave the relationship. But so it's a it was an example of like it was a check. It's a challenge because here's someone who's had EMDR, and I don't believe she needs more of that. And in fact, yeah. if she wants it, she can do it on herself now because she knows the traumas very well. It's very hard to get her to work on, but so I'm trying to work on the developmental part, which is mm. the coping modes and all that mm. in the therapy, because she's mm. constantly angry at me. So it took a very long time. At first I was telling her, you know, we're not getting where you're angry at me every session. I said, and I may well be making mistakes, but if you're just venting anger, you know, how, how can we get anywhere? And she says, she said, and this was something I hadn't thought, she said, I think the fact that I have a chance to vent anger and that you're sitting and taking it, <laughs> helping me when you do that. So that was like something like, I had never really thought of the angry child very much that way. I had a little bit of the idea, it's good to vent it, but the idea that her, and I'm telling you, when she, She'll go into every criticism of every word I use, everything I forgot that she that she had said the session before. And yet, we after she's gotten all the anger out, then we have a talk, a conversation. What what got triggered when she got angry mm -hmm. this time? Was mm -hmm. it the same reason she was angry the time before? What can I do that helps her after she's angry? Is it more helpful to look at the schemas and label them? Is it more helpful for us to be close to each other, like to try to bond? She says, no, I don't want to bond with you. So, I mean, <laughs> you get all these things playing out. So it is like a, a new challenge because yeah. it's like I don't 
a combining EMDR that isn't really a solution because she's had it. So now the question, how do I work with someone with really severe trauma and where it's played out in destroying her relationships? Mm. And what do I do? Because the regular schema model isn't really enough. There's things that go on, something between the therapy relationship and the trauma that makes it so it's impossible. It's very, very hard to make progress. So I'm having to rethink the, the, the nature of the therapy relationship with someone who was severely traumatized. I mean, I always thought the therapy relationship is one of the, is the architecture, you know, where some of this stuff can kind of happen, you know, and other approaches don't focus too much. And I, I mean, even my training, Jeff, you know, like I always sort of, no, like limited repairing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then it wasn't until probably in the last sort of 10 years I've sort of really kind of valued that more and saw that as a part of you know, change itself, particularly with trauma, trauma-based clients, which I often work yeah, with. Exactly. And, and like with this patient, she started the therapy by telling me, look, I don't want to work on the relationship. I don't, this is not about bonding. This is not about, you know, our being close to each other or connecting to each other. This is about you're telling me what to do to do to, to, to deal better when each thing happens. So she actually ruled out discussion and she get angry at me if I tried to bring up yeah. the therapy relationship. So she actually closed off part of our model she she thought reparenting was ridiculous i always think when that happens that's an in like in my head i sort of think mm, like it's almost an indicator this is exactly where we need to go well exactly the trouble was every time i tried to go there she attacked me yeah and she said what you're doing it again you're trying to get closer i told you <laughs> i don't want to get closer this is a waste of my like this is actually this is a complete waste of my time i spent 12 years in therapy there's nothing I'm going to gain. I've had, I, I had all these therapists who wanted to have relationships. Yeah. None of them knew how to have a relate. I mean, so. So she was running away the whole time. She did all the, you know, EMDR and waving fingers and all, all the trauma focused yeah. stuff, but she hadn't, you know, she wouldn't go there. Yeah, she wouldn't go there. And, but until we discovered that working on the therapy relationship by allowing her to vent anger was helpful. So it's still a little hard to understand. So then she had to admit that in a way, that there's something going on here, like this part is the therapy. Right. And she's always said, and she's very smart, so she has always said, if you show me that something works, I will keep doing it. Right. Oh, well, she's going to keep doing this, Jim. She's going to keep doing this. Yes. If you can't show me that it's working, I'm not going to keep doing it. Hi, you've been listening to What's the Schematter? We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far with Jeff Young. And in a couple of weeks' time, we'll have part two of this excellent interview. So until then, we'll see you soon. Thanks.